1: Hello, this is Monica Wilkie. I'm the host of New Books in Media and Communication, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today, we're going to be talking to Mike Anani about his latest book, Networked Press Freedom, Creating Infrastructures for a Public Writer Hear. Mike, welcome to the channel. Hi,
0: Monica. Thank you very much. It's great to chat with you.
1: Likewise. So before we get into the meat of your book, can you just give us a brief bio about yourself and tell us how you
0: came to write this book? Sure, yeah. So I'm an associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California, and I teach and do research across both areas in communication and in uh, journalism. And I mostly, uh, a lot of my work sort of focuses on this idea of what kind of public life is created at this intersection of journalism and technology. So anytime that news organizations sort of create technology or use social media or partner with technology companies, um, I'm interested in the kind of clues that they leave about how they understand public life, you know, who they think the public is and what they think they can, uh, do about public issues and what they think they owe to the public. Um, So the book was really sort of uh, born out of those kinds of concerns of trying to say in this sort of environment where journalism is changing, technology companies and platforms are becoming increasingly powerful. We're seeing this intertwining of Of really the work of news and the work of software creation. Um, So I was sort of curious, what what sort of sparked my curiosity was what kind of press emerges from those uh, kinds of relationships and those kinds of intersections?
1: The title of your book is Network Press and you use this phrase throughout your work. Can you give us a definition of what you mean by the
0: networked press? Right, yeah. So, but I mean by the networked press is I mean all of the different kinds of people and institutions and technologies and practices that go together, that fit together to produce what we consider, quote, news. And I put sort of news in quotation marks because I think we've historically thought about news as what news organizations produce. We've sort of thought about news as what journalists make. They go, they observe the world, they go out into the world, they report on the world that is published through traditional media channels. And that, that becomes news. It becomes information that is assumed to have public importance. And that's assumed to sort of have a public power. So what I mean by networked press is to say, All of those people and practices and sort of rituals and and routines um, are now living in other places. They're no longer living just within newsrooms. They're living in software companies. They're living in advertising technology agencies. But they're also living in groups or communities of what we, you know, what technology companies would call, quote, users. These people that we used to think of as readers are now users. And All of those forces sort of create for us what we consider uh, news to be today. So when, when Facebook creates an algorithm that makes some news appear more likely than other news, when you or I as a user click on or retweet or forward or comment on one piece of news versus another piece of news, we collectively are providing a lot of signals about what news is, what news is thought to be and what how it has power. Um, and that's a really different world than the world of broadcast media and of traditional news work as things that happen within news organizations. So that's kind of what I, that's what I mean by networked press freedom.
1: you talk about the public right to know? Can you just define what you mean by this, and who decides what the public should and shouldn't know?
0: Right. Um, yeah, that's a that's one of sort of the central um, claims of the book, and so and it's related to that distinction between sort of the press and the network press. But the the old way I think of thinking about press freedom was these were sort of heroic and very individual journalists who were pursuing what they thought the public needed to know and to hear to be a democratic, self-governizing, sort of self-organizing group. And I think the, the concept was, if we just sort of leave these journalists alone to, to speak, to report, to print, to publish, and we give them access, and we give them a lot of independence from other forces, if we did all of that, then the public would know what it needs to know. Um, and I th- I think there's a, a couple problems with that. Um, one of them is that it kind of leaves this power to define what the public needs with journalists themselves. It assumes that journalists have a you know really mature and sort of well developed notion of what what quote the public is and they can think about the public in different ways. And uh, you know many journalists do think about this in a in a subtle and nuanced way. But what I was trying to get at with this idea of a public right to hear is sort of decouple it from the assumptions that journalists might have and sort of the power that journalists have to to do their work. What I wanted to do is to say, well, maybe there's some other kind of sort of public making power um, that is related to, but separate from what we just assume journalists to do. And I've always given journalists the power um, to do.
1: So you discussed that when you were talking about the public right to know, you were talking about journalists, and when you talked about networked press, you brought in all these various software companies, Facebook, those sort of platforms that are now part of this space as well. Do you think a lot of the the tensions in this space could come from that journalists and these platforms are essentially providing the same service as in their providing news, but they view their roles differently?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it. Um, And we know from a lot of the evidence that journalists are seeing their work differently. Mm -hmm. And we see this with a new generation of journalists that have sort of, you know, been hired and educated in worlds where you know, the internet is no longer something that you almost even talk about or think about necessarily. You journalists today assume that their work is going to be circulating and monetized and commodified and shared in these online environments. Um, so I think you're right to say that journalists think about, you know, they think about what kind of headlines they're using. Well, you know, headline writers think about what kind of headlines work for, you um, Uh, For search engine optimization, journalists will often think about uh, who their sources are and whether sources exist, for instance, on social media. So can you use Twitter accounts uh, as sources or is sourcing something that should exist separately from social media? Um, Journalists also think a lot about sort of who their competitors are in this networked world. So uh, as we've seen sort of an explosion of news sources, a lot of times, and we know this from evidence, people cannot necessarily tell you where they got a story from or whether, where they saw a story. It may have floated by on their Facebook feed or their Twitter feed. And journalists are often quite aware of that. So they're thinking about how do I differentiate myself from other uh, journalists on an individual brand level? And how does my organization differentiate itself? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's increasingly, you know, a lot of that that thinking about digital technologies and network technologies, it's increasingly baked into and really intertwined with how journalists think about uh, how they work.
1: I think it's an interesting point there that you brought up about sources, and obviously one of the main impacts of digital technology is the speed at which you can, you can get these things. I mean, someone can send out a tweet instantly or an, an email to a, a, a source, to a journalist instantly, Are sources more or less reliable now? I mean, because in the pre-internet days, someone could have always written a letter anonymously to a journalist or made a phone call. Is it particularly different now in terms of reliability of
0: sources? I think it's different. I think I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say that, you know, sourcing today is easier or more reliable than it was in the past. I think you've got a different set of signals and concerns to be aware of. So so a few few cases come to mind where, you know, for instance, somebody, and I talk about this in the book, but somebody like Andy Carvin, when he was reporting on the uprisings and the riots in uh, Middle East and North Africa, um, in Egypt and Tunisia, especially, um, he was doing sourcing in a really different way. He was, you know, sitting in his office in Washington, D.C. as a reporter with NPR at the time. And he was trying to figure out what was going on on the ground in these in during these uh, these uprisings. And he was doing a lot of really sophisticated verification work, where he was sort of reaching out to his networks of contacts. He was uh, you know flying with Google Earth images and trying to figure out where were images coming from, where was video coming from. He was, you know, in a sense, he was giving us a master class in how to do verification. It was also controversial because he was doing a lot of that con- verification work. Uh, visibly he was doing it in public and a, that is a, sort of a controversial thing to do is to put information and in, out to your Twitter feed and say do you think this is um, uh, valid do you think this is legitimate uh, is this source somebody I can rely upon he was really doing that work in public uh, in full sight of the networks that he was working with um, You know, he says, and and I understand why he would say this, he says that that's part of the work of journalism now is doing that work in public. That's a really different kind of work to do than the older days of, you know, being in the newsroom and doing all that work privately and in a secluded environment and then publishing a story that you could back up, that you could sort of claim. Um, So I think the sourcing is happening, you know, differently in that way. But a, a second example or a second context is there are there was a case the washington journal or sorry the washington post these are these are world-class journalists um the washington post had a case a little while ago where some of their journalists were using twitter bot accounts so automated twitter bot accounts they were uh, using those bots as sources within the stories that they were making and you know, these, are, these are automated. Um, these are not people at all. These were sort of automated accounts, very much like the kind that have been the sources of uh, manipulation today. So in that case, the Washington Post journalists you know, did not have enough sophistication to recognize when somebody was a bot and when somebody was a human. Um, and to a reader, those sources look the same. Um, so the sourcing is different. I think there's sort of you know, opportunities, but there's also some real serious challenges that uh, journalists need to consider.
1: Do you think a part of the difficulty of journalists overcoming those challenges is that these technologies are still relatively new to us? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that journalism the journalism school started to pop up and that process sort of entered the tertiary education space. So that is that is again relatively new. And now you've got this extra layer of this new communicative technologies. Do you, see, do you think a lot of it is still people trying to negotiate how best to use these technologies?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a really um, good point. I think when when a lot of internet technologies sort of first came online in a commercial way, um, you know, just thinking about the, the older days of, mm-hmm. of blogs and um, sort of really simple message boards and, or things like LiveJournal, um, I think journalists and news organizations saw these as publishing channels. They saw them as sort of like a newspaper, but just quote online. It was just you know this idea that you would do what you would do, and then you would just put it on a different channel. And news organizations struggled with this for a long time. Was do you consider your print journalists to be separate from your digital online journalists? Um, your radio reporters to be separate from you know your your digital journalists? Um, and they really went through a period of time. And I, I think to the work of Pablo Bachkowski here really nicely traced some of those early dynamics where looking at how news work was done in newsrooms where they were trying to defa- decide, was this a publishing channel or was this something different? Was this something new? Um, and journalism schools, and I'm, I'm in a journalism school myself right now, um, similarly struggled with this. And you saw this in curricula where you know some schools are still struggling with this, where they say, should we train someone to be a print journalist? And then have them go off into the world and do their work online, or is there something about the training of journalists that's intertwined with the tools and the technologies um, that they're using? So I, I, I think what we've seen, and it's been pretty rapid and pretty recent, is this maturation, this development of thinking about the story as the unit of analysis, uh, or the unit of concern for journalists, and educating students to produce in whatever media makes sense for the story And it's a lot of pressure to put them under, for sure, because they have to learn how to, you know, make packages, we call them, um, make video packages, you know, audio packages, um, print packages, and they have to pivot around those. Um, So there's, that's a difficulty in the production side. And then the the last thing I'd say on this is we've, we've then got these, uh, you know, the platforms in all of this that are kind of a moving target. So the challenge that we have is you don't I always think you don't want to train a journalist to write stories, you know, for Facebook or for Twitter. You want to train journalists to write good stories that have public importance and significance. You, we, we can't have journalists getting so closely tied to the platforms because those platforms change. They they change for lots of reasons that are not reasons that are necessarily good for the news media or good for journalism. So we don't want to box our students or our journalists in to only being sort of, you know, Twitter-trained journalists or Facebook-trained journalists. Um, so we're, we're asking a lot of journalists and we're asking a lot of journalism students. Um, and I think that's why it's both a, you know, an exciting but also really challenging space to be in.
1: so on the point of journalism schools, you had a, an interesting fact in your book, where you said journalism schools increased rapidly from 10 in 1920 to 55 in 1928. Why the sudden increase?
0: Yeah, um, so that's, there's a, and then I get into it in the book, yeah, there's sort of a history of the professionalization of journalism that was happening, and this is, it's a very United States uh, story that I'm telling in the book, but part of it is related to well, there's a, a bunch of different kinds of things going on there. So one is that after World War One in the United States, there was sort of this realization that government information offices had basically been lying to journalists. They had been giving journalists um, purposefully false information about how the war was going. And the government propaganda offices were basically doing this in order to keep support for the war high for, for the first world war high. And journalists were, you know, with, with some notable exceptions, but journalists were largely um, sort of echoing what the government information offices told them, partly because there was not yet a a tradition, a a mainstream tradition. There were certainly, you know, uh, watchdog journalists and investigative journalists um, who were doing this work, but it, it was not yet a profession that had settled on the idea that its job was to oppose and to uh, question power. And the idea that the government might purposefully lie to you and try to use you as a journalist as their mouthpiece, that was a pretty new idea. And there was sort of a crisis of journalism after World War I and people like Daniel Hallen have written about this, but also you know uh, people like Walter Lippmann weighed in on this, people like John Dewey weighed in on this. There was sort of this question of what is journalism up to? Is it is it about giving citizens and residents information to make decisions? Is it about reflecting a social world that's presumed to be stable and unchanging? Is it about convening publics and bringing people together through communities of concern? Um, I think part of the reason you saw that that rapid expansion of journalism schools was sort of this post World War One crisis that the profession's going through, to kind of say what is it doing, uh, who is it accountable to, who is it trying to hold accountable, um, and what's what does it mean to train journalists? And that's those are those are perennial questions. We kind of still have those questions in journalism schools today, of what it means to do that work.
1: So you mentioned then about how the role of journalists could be to speak truth to power, for lack of a better phrase. There are a lot of other professions that are in the business of producing and disseminating information. Is that what makes journalists different to other communicators, that they have a role or, if you want to even go further, a duty to speak truth to power as opposed to just put out information?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. Um, I tell my students, sometimes I remind them, and again, this is in a, a U.S. context, but I say, you know, the press is the only commercial institution that's mentioned in the United States Constitution. You know, it's the only business in a way that's called out as having a constitutional, a legal role to play. And I, I try and talk with them and say, well, why is that? Like we, we don't call out, we don't call out medicine. We don't call out, you know, the judiciary in the same way. Um, there's something about journalism, and you know, the discussion we usually have is to say the power of journalism is journalism is to make publics, is to not see publics as these things that you sort of find in the wild and pick up and just report on as if they're completely natural. But this is what communication is all about, is communication is about drawing out uh, commonalities and distinctions among people who are living in solidarity. Sometimes they're living in conflict. And that's the uh, sort of professional but also sort of ethical duty of journalists is to recognize their role as makers of publics. So I think they're, they're quite different from other content producers, because ideally, they have this other ethical dimension to what they do. Now, there can be a wide variety of meanings of what it means to make a public, what it means to inform citizens, what it means to sort of challenge power. Um, there's lots and lots of variation of what that can look like. Um, but if if journalists sort of think they're just another kind of content producer, then uh, you know, I got to say, I think you should get out of the journalism business and get into whatever that other business is that you want, because I, I think you're not really uh, you're not doing journalism and you're doing something else. So in the book, you discuss
1: democratic autonomy and you give a variety of definitions of autonomy. Can
0: you just talk us through some of those briefly? So a few different thoughts about what sort of autonomy means. We've in a uh, sort of a, a liberal, small L liberal Sort of marketplace model of autonomy. Um, it's sort of this idea that people largely exist independently as fully formed, you know, fully developed individuals, and autonomy is about giving those individuals freedom from forces or uh, others that might impact or interfere with their expression of who they are. So it sort of says. Uh, we, I, I, as an individual, am fully baked and, and who I am, and what I really need from either the government or the markets or the state or uh, some other people, I need you to get out of my way so that I can live my life as I want to live my life, that's sort of autonomy. And that's sort of a classic, almost Enlightenment-era liberal marketplace model of autonomy. Um, and a lot of especially American Western notions of individualism and autonomy rest on that idea um, as well. But but this is what the book tries to get into. There's a lots of there's other kinds of autonomy. Um, and one of these is this idea that and this is Isaiah Berlin's notion of sort of positive and negative freedom. So in Berlin's notion, negative freedom is sort of this freedom to be left alone, to be abused. But but there's a lot of human existence and a lot of social existence in particular That relies on people seeing themselves not as fully formed individuals just existing in the world, but people who need other people to communicate. I need other people to do things. I need other people to challenge my viewpoints. I need other people to tell me things that I would not seek out and learn about myself um, and introduce me to new communities that I wouldn't seek out myself so I need to be embedded in a community, uh, a communicating community, um, that's going to show me different ways of being, that's going to show me different kinds of life I could have. And the, so this is sort of this more positive notion of autonomy and what that lands on, what it sort of says is, um, for me to be a fully thriving, fully, you know, um, present member of my community, um. I've I've got to have these relationships and that it's actually worse for me as an individual to think that I just want to be left alone. And I just want to be uh, seen as an independent individual. So from a speech perspective, um, you know, a free speech, a marketplace model of free speech says, just let us all speak individually, try to have very minimal barriers to that speech. And somehow this marketplace of speech will sort of add up to the kind of governance or add up to the kind of talk that we need in order to govern ourselves. But a different, this affirmative um, or sort of positive notion of freedom that is present in you know the work of some legal scholars like Alexander Mickeljohn or Owen Fiss. This affirmative notion of speech says publics actually need a right to hear speech that they would not necessarily seek out for themselves. I need people to say things. I need communication structures to reveal to me speech that I would not independently seek out. Um, So that's where the notion of sort of a public right to hear comes from, is it says, let's not just go back to this individual marketplace model, this almost sort of libertarian notion of speech. Let's recognize that I I need my communication infrastructures to to give me a more complicated picture of who I could be.
1: So you discussed the interplay between freedom and duty and what institutions help autonomy. How does the press help with the process of autonomy and what, if any, other institutions help?
0: Ah, that's a fantastic question. Um, so for me, the I think about the press in sort of three three broad ways. So the press is made up of journalists who are doing their work they are out there practicing in the world they're deciding what's newsworthy or not they are you know reporting on some stories or not they're choosing language to do so that's sort of the the work the verb of journalism in a way the verb of the press and then there's the news itself the news is sort of this content that circulates it goes through networks it appears as you know stories or videos or uh, images and it's sort of a, the noun in a way of, of news um, is this uh, the noun of the press, I should say. It's this news content as well. And then the third bit of the press I think about as sort of these structural conditions or these institutional conditions. So these are things like, you know, who gets funding or who doesn't get funding? Um, what kinds of access do some journalists have versus other kinds of access? Um, what kinds of readers are more attracted to or supportive of some kinds of news versus other kinds of news? And these are also the, these sort of, you know, background, um, but very powerful forces. So when I think about the the duty of the press, it's really to recognize its duty to make publics. And I kind of come back to this. And what I mean by publics, you know, can mean a lot of different things. Um, maybe we can get into that. But... Um, that's the duty of the press is to sort of be be thoughtful, what my, uh, Don Schoen calls a reflective practitioner. A reflective practitioner is somebody who's able to do their work, but also take a step back and look at the kind of work they're doing and ask these questions of, you know, how far or close am I getting to an ideal? So when I think about the duty of the press, it's across those three levels of, I want reflective practitioners and journalists who are thinking about what they do. I also want sort of the content analysis kind of piece of this that a lot of journalism scholars do, where it's looking at what type of news circulates, um, what types of things are being said, what types of things are not being said. And then I want this third piece, which is really about these institutional conditions to say, what kinds of journalism and kinds of news could we get if we had different funding mechanisms, if we had different legal structures, if we had different sort of cultural assumptions? Um, so that, I'm not sure if that answers it, but that's how I think about the duty of the press as sort of spread out across those those three levels of analysis. So analyses.
1: you've mentioned publics then. So can you just define what you mean by publics
0: and discuss a couple of the different ones that exist? Sure, yeah. And the, the book gets into more detail on this for sure. But um, yeah, there's a few different kinds of publics um, that we can think about. So um, one type of public, and this is sort of um, like a... a pragmatic or john dewey would sort of have this kind of public where you think about publics are these shared conditions of life that you cannot escape you cannot remove yourself from and you can these are usually uh public goods you can think about as like the air we breathe the the water we drink Um, but you can also think about like public school systems or taxes or things that we uh we want to devise collective solutions to because it's you know it's good for me to even though I might not have kids myself it's good for me to live in a society where people are well educated and have you know thriving schools um, to live in uh, it, it's good for me to live in a place where I can reliably walk outside and breathe clean air it's good for all of us to not worry about the health of the water coming out of our taps these are sort of shared conditions of life that you can't you can't fully um, escape from you can't just devise individual solutions to it. Although, especially in a US context, some people do, right? They send their kids to private schools, they'll have private, um, you know, private water systems and things like that. So that's one kind of public a sort of public, Dewey would call that sort of a public of shared consequences. Um, But we can also think of other publics like a Habermasian sort of communicative public, where it's about um, thinking about publics as groups of people that get together to to rationally discuss and to sort of um on a on an even playing surface present information and uh devise solutions to shared problems but it's very much this sort of uh rational exchange of ideas and the power there is in the um in the uh the discourse, you know, in sort of how that discourse is designed. And, you know, somebody like Habermas has done a lot of work on it. Um, But I'm also thinking there's another, you know, way of thinking about publics is sort of in a Chantal Mouffe kind of way of thinking about agonistic publics where um, it's, you know, to oversimplify in ways to say, well, she might say, well, who are we kidding that we're all going to be coming together in these lovely Habermasian ideals of discussion? we need public life that actually makes space for contestation, for competing viewpoints, for actually taking to task the kind of power imbalances and power differences that exist. And somebody like Nancy Fraser would say this as well, in terms of her critique of Habermas, is to say, let's not kid ourselves and think that we're living in this lovely, you know, ideal, equitable society. A lot of what public life is about is engaging with those power differences and is about uh, figuring out what what equity and what equality looks like, and that that entails contestation, that entails um, you know arguments a lot of times. So the, I, I could go on, but those are sort of some of the the types of publics. But it's in thinking about it in terms of the the press duty. And your your previous question is that a lot of journalists, I think, sort of default kind of to this Habermasian ideal of the public. Um, A lot of journalists will talk about, you know, the rational informed citizen who is, um, you know, making good choices about how to vote or how to spend money. And there's sort of, it's this ideal of individual rational action. That's, I think, that's my read of a lot of dominant forces in journalism is that's what they think they're up to. Um, but there's other ways you can think about journalism. Maybe it's the shared conditions way. Maybe it's a, a journalism of empathy. Maybe it's a journalism of solution making. Um, maybe it's a journalism of contestation. Um, there's lots of other kinds of public that uh, that the press could be making.
1: You just said that there were a lot of different ways to think about journalism. And um, I'm just chuckling a little bit because I, the next question I found um, Timothy Cook's research quite amusing because of the conclusion he drew. So you said Timothy Cook's study into journalism in which he concluded that he has no particular faith in journalism, given that journalists are unelected and it's difficult to hold the press to account. So given his rather pessimistic, I would say, interpretation, how can the press represent the public when, as he concludes, they are unelected people?
0: Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. I know, and Cook's work is really sort of foundational and really central to the way the book thinks about institutions um, and sort of journalists' relationship to institutions. But I think accountability can come in a few different ways. I mean, one is that, so the marketplace does provide a certain amount of accountability, and that's a very American solution to sort of the problem of accountability. It presumes that you know, people are voting with their feet and, and eyeballs and clicking on the things and paying for the things they want to, and that, that somehow that will provide us with uh, sort of accountability in that, in that way. But I think, I, I actually think I, I take sort of the public media model a little bit more is that there's sort of a relational accountability that journalists can be engaged in. So uh, a simple example is, you know, NPR, National Public Radio in the US has this sort of membership model Um, the sponsorship model where people, um, uh, become quote members of their, their public radio stations. That is a really, it's a fairly different way to think about accountability when you see your audiences, not as people who are going to just, you know, make a decision to move to some other channel or to give you money or not give you money. But if you have this sort of relational aspect of accountability, um, where you they live in your communities and they share a same sense of the problems that you might have. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that's just a almost an orthogonal or really different way to think about accountability than markets. It's not that journalists are elected for sure. To you know, Cook is totally right, um, but I think this sort of accountability through relationships is for me, the most exciting and sort of interesting form of accountability, even though it's really messy. It's really messy stuff to think about how to have a relationship with a news organization. Um, but I think that's where local media and local news organizations are kind of leading the way is to uh, create yeah, that sort of relational accountability.
1: People have more access to journalists these days than ever before through comment sections, social media and the like. Do you think these things could Help with the relational aspects that you just described. If people feel like they are able to access the journalist directly,
0: yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, is there a yes and no, I think, and that's where the sort of the design of these infrastructures and design of these platforms really matters. Um, so one thing I think we want to be careful of here is kind of not not turning journalists into like the Swiss army knife of public communicator where they have to do absolutely everything. And the journalists that I talk to are understandably quite wary and hesitant to, you know, engage with every single comment writer or every single Twitter uh, replier uh, who has a problem with your work or wants more clarification or something. We can, very quickly find ourselves turning journalists into sort of public consultation managers um, and then they don't necessarily have the time or bandwidth to be able to write write the stories and produce the stories they need Um, so i think but what we're starting to see and the book gets into this a little bit is um different types of labor being recognized in news organizations and some of these take the form of like community managers or uh, audience relationship engagement. Um, They they come in very different titles for sure, but there's a set of people who are sort of tasked with looking at who audiences are. Some of this is data analytics work. It might not be engaging with a commenter directly, but it's sort of looking at patterns of data and saying, where is our audience moving? Where is it coming from? And then it's sort of a hard ethical editorial decision to say, do we want to go where our audience seems to be going or do we have an independent editorial vision where we want to uh, bring them somewhere else and we're going to work hard to do that? But I think, and this is part of the the explosion of journalistic roles, we can't expect individual journalists to do all of that. So um, we can give audiences... Uh, access, but we can't um, sort of put all that on the individual journalists. Um, although, can I actually say one more last little thing on this point is that um, one of the places where we've, we're seeing this tension play out is in the idea of a public editor, uh, sometimes called an ombudsman, um, and historically they've usually been men. Um, but these, so the New York Times sort of famously discontinued the role of its public editor and the uh, executive editor and the publisher both said at the time, they said, well, we don't need a public editor who is historically charged with sort of being this liaison, this intermediate person who could explain audiences to journalists, but could also explain journalistic decisions uh, to back to audiences, right? So the public editor was usually this really rich uh, intermediary role. And uh, so when, when the New York Times discontinued its public editor role, it it made this very telling you know, reveal in a way because they said, well, we think all of that, that audience interaction is happening on social media now. So you can, you know, you can reach journalists through Twitter or through Facebook, or you can do your audience interactions that way. And I, I gotta say, and I've written a little bit about this, but um, I think that's a real missed opportunity for just devolving this, audience relationship to social media platforms and thinking that those platforms, which were not built as journalism, as news platforms, um, that thinking that a Facebook forum uh, where anybody can weigh in is gonna get you the kind of accountability that a really thoughtful public editor would. Um, So sorry, I know it's a long answer, but I think this issue of sort of how audiences and journalists see each other is a really uh, complicated but important one.
1: So I'll just, I'll finish on this. So are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of press freedom?
0: (laughs) Um, It depends on the day sometimes, but um, I think I'm overall optimistic, and I I think that optimism actually comes... uh, I might have said something different a year ago, but I think in the last year, I think we've seen more of a grappling of the role that technology companies are playing in public communication. And there's I think we have a we're getting a better and better critique of technology companies and platforms uh, than we used to have. So I'm seeing I'm beginning to see you know news organizations you know saying you know, getting really frustrated with Facebook and how they direct traffic or don't direct traffic or when Jack Dorsey of Twitter said, well, you know, the problem of, of misinformation on Twitter could be solved if journalists would just do verification work for us and make the platform better for us. And journalists, you know, largely responded and said, you're crazy, you know, where our job is not to make your platform better and give our free labor to do fact checking for you. Um, you got to fix your platform. Um, I'm, I'm more optimistic these days, because I'm, I'm seeing journalists start to get a language uh, and a power in their response to these technological forces that I, I, don't think they had, uh, you know, even, even two or three years ago, I don't think they understood how to speak back to platform companies. And that's a, that's a broader conversation that's starting to happen now.
1: So before we let you go, Mike, we just like to
0: finish on to ask the question, what are you working on now? Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's great. Um, so it's a, a new book project. Um, it's it's going to come out with Yale uh, University Press um, in a little bit. But it's So it's tentatively called the White Space Press. And what I've been thinking about in this book, it's an extension of part of this current book, um, but really is thinking about the idea of absence and silence in the press and how sometimes absence and silence can mean lots of different things, whether it's you know, sometimes it's censorship or self-censorship, but other times it's sort of evidence of listening or it's evidence of editorial choices. So it's a bit of an abstract follow-up in a way to the current book, but it's to try to look at uh, this phenomenon of absence or silence or um, uh, and and ask, you know, what does that mean for the press and what does it mean for public making? So it's a It's a short book, but it's a bit of an abstract diversion after uh, being in the weeds of of digital journalism. Well,
1: we'll definitely have to get you back when that one comes out.
0: Oh, that would be fun. That would be great.
1: (laughs) Mike, thank you very much for joining
0: us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: That was Mike Anany, and his latest book, Network Press Freedom, Creating Infrastructures for a Public Right to Hear, is available now. I've been Monica Wilkie, and this was a new books networking media and communication podcast thank you for listening and we'll see you next time